I have two recurring nightmares, like wake up in the middle of the night, stressed nightmares. In one of them, I'm standing on a stage, and there's some sort of show going on around me that I'm in, but I have no idea what it is. And so I'm frantically trying to look at the costuming and the props and the sets and listen to the lines that are being spoken to figure out what the show is, because I figure if I'm on stage, I probably have a line coming up or a move to make or, heaven forbid, a dance move to perform. (laughs) And I'm just trying to figure out what show I'm in, and then I can figure out what role I'm in so I'll know what to do. The second nightmare is is related, uh, but a little bit different. So in this nightmare, I'm backstage. I know what the show is. I know what my role is, and it's opening night, and I haven't memorized my lines. And I'm sitting there with the script, frantically trying to memorize my lines. And I think this is a little bit about how we... Like we live life. A lot of us go through life like looking around thinking, I'm in a story, but I'm not sure what it is. And I don't know what my role is supposed to be. Or some of us have an inkling of what the story is and we kind of know what our role is supposed to be, but we don't know what our lines are in the midst of it. We're coming to the end of a series um, titled Script. The idea that your favorite scripture will eventually become the script of your life. This is what tells us the story that we're in and the role that we play and the lines that we have. Now, I I hope that as we come to the end of this series that you find yourself inspired and encouraged and not discouraged. I I really want to echo something that Emily Hendrickson said a couple of weeks ago that if you don't have a life verse, it's okay. Okay. Maybe you've never thought about it before. Maybe you haven't spent much time in the script. It's all right. Eventually, you'll discover your life first. Eventually, you'll discover your script. Or the script will discover you. And so as we end this series, I don't want the journey to end for you. And so what I would encourage you to do is um, stay in the script. Keep reading. Read all of it. Read the boring parts, the exciting parts, the challenging parts, the part you still don't understand. Read it all. And then memorize it. Get it into your gut to the place where it just becomes second nature for you. And then rehearse it. Practice it. Do the stuff it says, even though it feels awkward. Some of the stuff we read in here, it's going to feel awkward when we do it. I believe that the people that are used, the mightiest of God, are the people that have to come to a point where they eventually like, have to get over themselves. So just practice it. When your favorite scripture becomes the script of your life. Um, I've had a few favorite scriptures over the years. I mean, Joshua 1.8, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to observe everything in it, and then your way will be prosperous and successful. I believe that if we live our lives against the backdrop of Scripture, everything will fall into place. And one of my life missions is to help people fall in love with the Bible. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. The idea that transformation happens in community. And community is incredibly messy. But that mess might be the thing that actually catalyzes the growth we so want to see. And then there's Habakkuk 3.17 and 19. And just to paraphrase it, because it's a little long, basically, when everything falls apart around you, when all of my life is in shambles, yet I will still praise the Lord my God. 
The idea that faith is knowing that God can and believing he will, but worshiping him even if he does not. But if I have to pick just one, if I have to look for the scripture that's been a thread in my life for the past two decades, the one that energizes me and excites me and incites me, it's got to be 2 Timothy 2.2. And what we read there is, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Paul was a follower of Jesus. He had given his life to reflecting the character and responding in the ways and implementing the mission of Jesus. And he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, saying, Timothy, take the things that I've taught you. Teach them to trustworthy people who will be able to teach others also. Now, Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey, and that's when Timothy decided to follow Jesus as well. And then Paul grabbed him to go along with him for the second missionary journey. And and Timothy eventually became a co-author of six of the letters that Paul wrote to churches. And he eventually became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And at the end of Paul's life, he's coming to the very end and he's saying, Timothy, the things that I have entrusted to you, the things that God has taught to me, that I've passed on to you, pass on to trustworthy men who will be able to teach others Also, Paul in the first generation passes to the second generation, to Timothy, to the third generation of trustworthy men, to the fourth generation of others. What Paul is doing is modeling what Jesus gave to his disciples as the last commandment. Go, make disciples of all nations. Jesus says this kingdom that I've promised will not come through power or through politics or through, mission, uh, through military strength. It's going to come through relationship. It's going to come through people helping others in the road of life. It's going to come through one generation speaking to the next of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. It's disciples making disciples making disciples. And what we see here is Paul Passing to Timothy, passing to faithful men, passing to others, and generation after generation, the story goes until we find ourselves here this weekend, 2,000 years later and 5,000 miles away, still talking about this story. See, this verse has become the script of my life because I believe deep in my gut that my life will not be measured by the number of people that I speak to, by the size of the organizations that I lead, or the number of books that I write. My success will be measured in how well I have discipled to the third and the fourth generation. I believe that my life counts to the extent that I can count the disciples in my wake. I refuse to let Jesus' last command become my least concern. Now, I realize that um, across our locations today, some of you are here. You're, You're here for the first time. You're checking this thing out. You're not sure what you think about this Jesus guy. 
I know some of you personally. We're so excited that you're here. And one of the struggles that I have today is I realize that what I'm talking about is most immediately applicable to those that have already made a decision to follow Jesus. I just want to invite you to hang with me for a moment. Partially because if, if you're thinking about following Jesus, this is part of what you're signing up for. But also because I assure you that no matter how long you've been following Jesus, um, most of us actually struggle with this. We're, we're not sure how to do this either. And, and I think part of it is that um, we find this problematic because we don't feel qualified to do it. When, when Ryan and I were walking through engagement, we were looking around for a couple that could kind of mentor us. And we saw this couple named Greg and Marva, and um, such a dear couple. They, they had decades of a solid marriage of supporting one another and celebrating one another. They had raised two awesome daughters. They, they were a picture of the kind of marriage we wanted to have. And so we went to them and asked them, would you mentor us during our engagement period? And they kind of looked at each other sheepishly, and they looked at us, and they said, well, we're not really sure we have anything to offer. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. They had so much to offer, so much in the way of their relationship with Jesus, their relationship with each other, but I think most of us probably feel the same way. I mean, what do we have to offer? Are we really qualified to make disciples? Well, let's just dig into this verse a little bit to find out what the qualifications are. First of all, Paul tells Timothy, take the things he's heard and pass them on to trustworthy people. Trustworthy people. Not educated people, not smart people, not people that are talented or people that are perfect or people that are educated. Trustworthy. It's not about your competence, it's about your character. It's not about um, your aptitude. It's about your availability. If you are faithful and reliable and available and teachable, you're qualified and called to make disciples. And then he says, who will pass them on to others? It's about just being willing to pass it on to other people. Twice, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Just do what I do while I'm doing it. It's not about downloading information. It's about developing relationship. It's not so much about being able to give the right answers. as It's about just being alongside someone to give affirmation. I mean, when I think about the people that have had the most profound impact on my life, it's not people that were giving me answers, but people that were just giving me time. They weren't teaching me theology. They were just sharing their life. And somehow my theology got shaped in the process. We all have something that we can pass on to others. I think we get tripped up because we think we have to change people. And I think it's important to remember that transformation is not our responsibility. Transformation is the job of the Holy Spirit. Transference of the things God has entrusted to us, to others, is our responsibility. It's not about transformation, it's about transference. Rufus, Gaius, Olympus, Aquila, Phoebe, Justice, these names don't mean anything to us. But they meant the world to Paul. When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Rome, it was the most theological and philosophical book 
that he had written. It was a systematic, categorical, chronological statement of his faith. And when he came to the end of that letter, and what we know today is Romans chapter 16, he ends that letter with a list of names. It's as though he puts the period on his statement of faith and then he lets the credits roll. It's his acknowledgments. He's giving the names of the people that had been with him, that had believed in him, prayed for him, encouraged him, invested in him. People that had been willing to take a risk on him, to go on journeys with him, to go to jail with him. And Paul is saying, I can't tell my story of faith without mentioning these names. His Romans 16 list. We all have a Romans 16 list. I think back to several years ago when I was at a very critical decision point in my life and I was trying to decide between uh, staying in my job on Capitol Hill or doing what most people with an environmental engineering degree do, become a pastor. <laughs> and, and in that moment of decision, I, I went to my family and my friends and mentors and I sent emails and I asked questions and I asked for prayer and asked for advice. And I got emails back from Mike Matthews. And Mike had been on the other end of every decision I'd ever made. In a phone call, in an email. He's one of my friend's parents. I mean, one of my parents' friends. And um, Mike had known me my whole life and was able to give me perspective. He shared some of his story with me that I didn't know. And he encouraged me. It's one of the most encouraging emails I've ever gotten. And I knew from Mike that whatever decision I made that I could trust the work that God had already done in my life. And then I got an email from Mike Matthews, very similar. He had known me from birth. And, um, and he was able to give me perspective from his life, perspective on the gifts that he had seen in my life, perspective even on parts of my life that I had forgotten about or maybe I didn't know about and just encouraged me. Now, neither of those guys gave me an answer to my question. But they prayed and they encouraged and they gave perspective and they pointed me to the ways of God. And I can't tell my story about that season of my life without including their names. Who are the people on your Romans 16 list? Who are the people that you can't share your story without mentioning their names? You can't make your statement of faith without mentioning their names. And then maybe more importantly, Whose Romans 16 list will your name be on? Who are the people that because of your prayers, your encouragement, your investment, that they will not be able to share their story of faith without mentioning your name? Now, I want to make this super practical for us this weekend. So what I want to do is give us four windows into this idea of making disciples, of what it means to pass our faith on to the next generation. The first person I want to look at is a guy by the name of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, and you can read this particular story in 1 Samuel 16. God tells Samuel to go anoint a new king, and uh, Saul has completely screwed things up, and so Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. God says, anoint a new king from his sons, and Jesse brings his sons in before the prophet Samuel, lines them up. There's seven of them. 
And Samuel begins to go down the line from the oldest to the youngest. And with each one, the Lord says, not him, not him, not him. And he gets to the end of the line. And Samuel asks Jesse, do you have any others? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt that's taking care of the sheep out in the pasture. And Samuel says, well, bring him in. And the moment that David stands before Samuel, he is anointed the next king of Israel. Now, David's dad didn't even put him in the lineup. Like David's dad didn't even take him to the audition. See, I think disciple makers have to be a little bit crazy because they see things in people that others don't. In fact, they see things in people that those people don't even see themselves. When Samuel looked at David, he didn't see a shepherd boy, he saw a king. When Jesus looked at Peter, he didn't see a loudmouth fisherman, but said, you're a rock, and on this faith I'll build my church. When Barnabas looked at Saul, he didn't see someone who murdered Christians, he saw someone who would take the gospel to the nations. And when Paul looked at Timothy, he didn't see a young punk kid, but said, you be an example to all the believers everywhere. Disciple makers redefine the labels. They invite people into a story that's bigger than they imagined. I think disciple making means keeping one ear to the spirit and one ear to the ground so that we can be prophets in the lives of one another. And I don't mean prophets in the sense of foretelling what's going to happen in their future, but calling out of them who God has already created them to be. Our words matter. So make them big, make them life-giving, make them not just inspirational, but aspirational, calling them to a higher place. We can't control the choices that people make, but we can control the words that they hear. Disciple makers redefine the labels. I mean, this could be as easy as just sending a note of encouragement to somebody. Making a point that tomorrow you're going to make somebody's day. The people that are around you just noticing and pointing out the fingerprints of God that you see in their lives. And when you're in a position of wanting somebody to disciple you, make sure that the voices that are the loudest in your life are the voices most influenced by the voice of God. Amplify the voice of God over every other voice around you. And be a disciple maker. Redefine the labels. David cannot tell his story of faith without including the name of Samuel, because Samuel redefined the labels. Next person I want to talk about is the prophet Elijah and his wingman, Elisha. Easy to get them confused. Uh, you can read this story in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was a prophet in Israel, and God had told him that Elisha would be his successor, the one coming behind him. And so Elijah's uh, the way that Elijah was going to prepare Elisha to be the next prophet was to just say, come along with me, join me. There's a difference between tour guides and travel agents. A travel agent will sit in the comfy chair in their climate-controlled office and pass across the desk to you brochures about where to go, how to get there, what you're going to see once you're there, how to prepare for it, how to pack tour guide is a little bit different. A tour guide is going to lace up their boots and strap on their pack and go on that journey with you. 
It's typically a journey that they've already been on before, and so they know what to prepare for, and they're able to navigate the problems along the way and help you up when you fall down and interpret the things that you're seeing on the way. Disciple makers are not travel agents. They're tour guides. Elijah's approach to getting Elisha ready was not to put him in a classroom of instruction, but to put him in the trenches of doing the work. Disciple makers share the road. They share the road. They invite people to do life with them as they live it. I mean, when I think about the people, again, that have most impacted me, it's not people that have had a regular coffee meeting with me or gone through a workbook with me. It's just people that have opened up their lives to me. I think about Dave and Lynn Weatherby when I think about this, too. A couple in our church, they just opens up their home to people and opens up their lives to people. At least three different times, Ryan and I have had um, a young person live with us in the months preceding their marriage. And what I realized in that experience is that it was one thing for me to talk to them uh, across a table about uh, what it looks like to have a healthy marriage and how to make decisions together as a couple and how to navigate conflict together. It's another thing for them to sit in my living room and watch Ryan and me do it. Now, it wasn't intentional that we did that. We just kind of discovered that along the way. You've got an intern in your office. It's one thing to talk to them about integrity. And how to sanctify that competitive streak. And how to do things with excellence. It's another thing to take them with you to every meeting you have. Invite them into every project you can so they can watch you do it. Disciple makers share the road. And what I would encourage you to do if you're in Elisha's shoes right now, and you're wanting someone to disciple you, you're wanting to share the road with somebody, find somebody that looks like the way you want to look like in a few years. And find a way to serve their dream. See, Elisha can't tell his story of faith without including the name of Elijah. Because Elijah was willing to share the road. What dream are you serving? And who's on the road with you? Disciple makers redefine the labels. They share the road. And then the next window is a a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. We run into them in Acts 16. They, They became friends with Paul They had a church that met in their home. And and one day they were hearing a young pastor by the name of Apollos preaching. And the scripture says that they took Apollos aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. Disciple makers push us. They see the gifts and the calling of God in our lives and they affirm that, but they push, they push us to a new level, a new level of understanding, a new level of maturity. They challenge us. They put hard questions in front of us. I think that we find Priscilla's and Aquila's all over NCC in the form of our small group leaders. People that create a place where the way of God can be explained more accurately. So we can follow him more closely and reflect him more clearly. Got a testimony this week from one of our baptism candidates. We have a baptism celebration coming up in a few weeks. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus but you've never been baptized, then one of the first steps of being a disciple is to be baptized. So I'd encourage you to consider doing that. 
One of our baptism candidates sent this story. He said, I made the decision to follow Christ on June 1st, 2014. It was at a small group with my old Alpha group leaders. This was a two-year journey of attending Alpha, finding NCC, and eventually committing myself to Christ on my first small group meeting. Since then, I've been attending NCC regularly, co-leading NCC Outdoors small group, and committed to two missions trips this year. Those Alpha group leaders created a safe place for this guy to wrestle with some dangerous truth. Created a safe place for him to be pushed for him to have the way of God explained to him more accurately. And as a result, he's now doing this disciple-making thing himself, leading a group, creating a place where others can have the way of God more accurately explained to them. Disciple-makers push us. Who's pushing you? Who are you pushing Apollos cannot tell his story of faith without including the names of Priscilla and Aquila because they pushed him to understand God better so that he could reflect him more clearly. And then we kind of come full circle all the way back to Paul. Paul did all of these things. He redefined the labels for guys like Timothy and Titus. He shared the road, quite literally. Paul never traveled alone. Every missionary journey, he was taking people with him. He explained the way of God more clearly and more accurately through the letters that he wrote and the churches that he planted, the small groups that he taught. There was another dimension of Paul's disciple-making that's really fascinating. Over and over again, he refers to Timothy as my true son. When he wrote to a church, he said, you have many instructors, you have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. I will be your father. Several years ago, Ryan and I were desperately praying for God to give us kids. And that was a prayer that we prayed for a long time. And, and one day, we just we changed the prayer. We said, God, it, it, it was no longer God give us kids, it was God make us parents. And when we started praying, God, make us parents, kids flooded into our lives. 20-somethings who were away from home for the first time that just needed some surrogate parents. 20-somethings that didn't grow up in families of faith that needed spiritual parents. Kids that didn't have good family situations that needed reparenting. Disciple-making is not about being a teacher. It's about being a parent. Disciple makers say yes to the next generation. Now, for those of you who are parents, like literal parents, parent parents, like you have tiny human beings running around your house, your kids are your greatest opportunity to make disciples. Don't miss it. For those of you that are single, maybe you're in your 20s, I would encourage you, it is not too early to begin parenting. Sign up for Crosswalk Kids. Sign up for our nursery. Email kids at theaterchurch.com. You won't actually find a better crop of people to make disciples fun from because they're teachable and they're fun-loving. 
You know, for years, children's ministry experts have encouraged a one-to-five ratio. One adult leader for every five kids. What if we flipped that? What if every kid at NCC had five adults who were redefining the labels in their life and sharing the road with them? What if every kid that leaves NCC has five names on their Roman 16 list before they go to college? I am so thankful, personally thankful, for Jordan and Holly and Elizabeth and Adriana and Samar and Moira who are discipling my one-year-old daughter every Sunday in the Echo Stage Nursery. Disciple makers say yes to the next generation. Timothy wouldn't be able to tell his story of faith without mentioning Paul's name because Paul said yes to him. Now, for those of you, again, that are just kind of checking this out, this is new to you, you're not sure what you think about this Jesus thing, about this church thing. What I've talked about this weekend is what you sign up for when you follow Jesus. It's about being willing to pass your faith to the next generation. But more importantly, it's what you get. Because Jesus is the ultimate redefiner of labels. Jesus says, you're no longer Simon, you are Peter, and you are a rock. He says to the woman that is unclean, you are daughter. To the man that is not seen, you are son. That you've been called from death to life. That the old you is passed away. And all has become new. Jesus redefines the labels in our lives. He gives us the Holy Spirit who shares the road with us, who explains the ways of God more accurately to us, and we get a father. We get a dad, a perfect dad, a heavenly father that loves you more than you could imagine. That's what I want to invite you into this weekend. A family. A home, a life of endless possibilities because Jesus believes in you and has invited you to share the road with him. There's a verse in the book of Judges that I think is the most heartbreaking book in Scripture. It says, Another generation grew up that did not know the Lord nor remember his mighty acts on behalf of Israel. Everything fell apart. One generation failed to pass on the goodness and the story and the faithfulness of God to the next generation and everything fell apart. Imagine for a moment a church that makes Jesus' last command its first concern. Imagine a church that is committed to passing on the story of God's goodness and faithfulness to the next generation. Imagine a church that doesn't see the generation coming behind it as a threat or competition or a disappointment, but is willing to redefine their labels and share the road with them and let them build on our foundation and stand on our shoulders so that they begin to make the world better and better and closer to the kingdom of God that Jesus promised. That's the generation I want to be. I want the people that are in my wake to go further than me and preach more boldly than me and lead more excellently than me. 
and bring hope for the future. And that begins when we answer the question, who will not be able to tell their story of faith without mentioning your name? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your script. I thank you that you have given us a new label to live up to, a new road to walk. That you've given us a way to see the way of God more excellently. And we thank you, God, that you parent us so well, that you father us so well. God, tonight we just want to declare your praises because we know that's the beginning of passing your story to the next generation. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for the blessings that you've brought to us. And today we just are going to stand and declare your praises to the next generation. In Jesus' name, amen.